Hi there. My name's Brad. Hi, Tim. Uh, it's good to see you. I'm the lead pastor here. If we haven't met, it's nice to kind of meet you from this far. Uh, I'd like to talk to you afterwards if, if you're up to it. I'm not that scary. Uh, I want to tell you about a friend I had in college. Uh, I'll keep her name silent. She had this knack for giving cards. And she, I swear she had like stock in Hallmark or something. But anytime you would say, I did really good on my midterm, there would be a card in your box by lunch congratulating you on your midterm. Then if there was a time where she noticed you missed class, she would have a get well thing delivered to your door saying, get well soon. It was, we, we even tried making stuff up to see if we'd get a card from her, right? It, all the time. She would write thank you cards. And it seemed like she would write thank you cards for the thank you card that you gave her for her card. It was just always thank you cards. Everything about her was cards and cards. We used to do open dorms and we'd go into hers and she literally had a filing cabinet of cards. She said that when she was at the store, she would just pick out a few that caught her eye and she, had, she was amply stocked in these things. It was great. The thank you card has kind of gone by the wayside in our culture. It just... Some people do it, and it's a great thing to do, uh, but it's kind of faded away. This is the motivation of Paul writing this letter. This is his thank you card. This is what Paul wanted to say from the beginning. Hey, Philippians, thank you for your gift. He just doesn't do a very good job at saying thank you, right? If we remember what was read, it sounds sort of like he's saying, hey, uh, Philippians, uh, thanks for your gift. Really didn't need it, but I'll use it. And that Epaphroditus guy, he's cool. Uh, thanks for remembering me. Okay, bye. Oh yeah, P.S. Thank you. It seems like that's what he's getting at. He's very nonchalant in his language. He's being very careful about what he's saying. There's a few reasons why he's doing this. In those days, there were these traveling like charlatan philosophers that used to go town to town and they would stand on the corner and they would peddle whatever knowledge they were given or knowledge that they picked up. Uh, they, they were seed spreaders, that's what they were called. They weren't very nice people, uh, but they would rip people off. They would stand on the corner on a little box and they would share, this is the philosophy that I've learned. And then they would gain a following. And then they would say, okay, now in order for you to learn more, I'm going to need this much money for me to open up the treasury of my knowledge to give you more knowledge. And it was just buy and buy and buy, and they would fleece people for money. If you didn't give them money because you agreed with what they said, they would shame you into giving more money. And so Paul is being very careful that he doesn't look like some of these people. He doesn't want to appear that he's doing what he's doing for the sheer cost or for the sheer reason of fundraising. He's not wanting to be that kind of evangelist. So he's being cautious. Hey, look, thank you. But I want you to notice I'm thanking Christ who used you to give the gift. So Paul is being very careful in his language. But when we look at his language, there are some principles that we can dig out in here that can help us live a life of contentment. The main theme that Paul is getting at, he just comes off of this whole thing on do not worry. Don't be anxious about anything. And then the next thing he says, you want to solve your anxiety problems? Learn to be content. This is how Paul solved the, the, uh, the problem of his anxiety. 
And so he says this, he says, uh, contentment is the root from all this. And when we're honest, when I'm honest, contentment is not something that I'm very strong in. And if any of you are like me, and I have a hunch that our culture is very much like this too, contentment doesn't flow very easily for anybody. We want the latest, we want the greatest, we want the fastest, we want the coolest looking. We buy something and all of a sudden we're, we're planning on how we're going to scheme and sell this one so we can get the upgraded model in two years. We, we're always looking for the bigger, we're always looking for the better. It's just the way our culture is. We're driven by want. We're driven by consumption. So when Paul comes to this, or we read this, and when I read this this week, I see contentment and I'm going, great. I'm terrible at this. I see myself in this text. Because here's how what I have. I'll sit down, I'll, I'll catch a Facebook story. We all, I mean, if you have Facebook, it's all comparison, right? And so I look and go, oh, they just moved into that house. Cool. Oh, they just bought that car? Awesome. They're remodeling what? For how much? Okay, that's awesome. They just got back from where? And every time I do this, I, I'm, I'm being honest with you guys, this is where my heart sits with contentment. Every time they do this, I find myself getting more and more miserable of where I am. I look around in our small place and go, okay, what did I do wrong? You know, we're, our car breaks down, Oh. Cool, what did we, we start comparing everything to everybody else, and then what I notice is I grow more and more dissatisfied because my contentment goes away, and then I become angry, and then I become worried, and then I decide I wanna work more and do more things, and that takes less time with my family, and then because I'm doing that, I'm stressed because I'm tired, and then my medical bills grow because I need more prescriptions to make me less anxious, and it just keeps going and going and going and going, and the root of it all is because of the lack of contentment. And it robs the joy that we're supposed to have. Paul's whole point in Philippians, thank you for your gift. It's awesome. I'm going to use it, but I'm more content in Christ than I am needing your gifts all the time. Paul understands contentment. And today I want to look at three things where we can probably try and get a grasp on the same kind of contentment that Paul had, and in that, find joy. Paul wants the Philippian people to find joy, to pursue joy. So the first thing Paul says is contentment is something that has to be learned. He says, I have learned what it is to be content. In verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned what it is to be, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I have learned what it is to be content. It's kind of like you have to, have, you have to learn to be patient while being patient. Or you have to learn and acquire the taste for vegetables. Kale. No one likes kale right out of the bat. We have to learn to enjoy kale and drip it in a ton of dressing and then back off the dressing. You have to learn to like black coffee. And so it's just one of those things where Paul says, I have learned the secret to being content. It's not something that comes naturally to any of us. 
the word he uses for secret is the word mueo, which is the root word, which the root word for it was mysterion. These things we don't know about, it's the mystery of contentment. He doesn't know how he learned it. He just learned it by practicing being content. You see it? It's kind of this weird thing. You learn it by doing it. You practice it. You, and the, but it's, it's one of those mysteries of Paul's writings. You have to be content in order to be content. There's a couple things we can get from it, though. Uh, being content can lead us to a couple of bad conclusions. Some of us think that wanting is a bad thing, that desiring something else is bad. That's not what Paul is saying now. We, we demonize wanting, but Paul makes it clear in other passages that wanting something is perfectly fine. Two passages ago, or last week, a the, the couple verses ago, he says, desire want, earnestly desire, really, really want what is good, what is noble, what is right, what is admirable, what is pure. Want these things, seek after these things. It's okay to want. In chapter two, he says we should want to become more and more like Jesus. He says there, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in this world. Seek justice. Don't be just content with everything that happens and go, it is what it is. That's the world we live in. They just got to stay here and stay out of it. He's not wanting us to be stoic. He says there's injustice. You should want justice. Seek justice. If there's something going on in your life and you say you're in a bad situation, maybe it's abuse, get out of it. It's not saying that you have to be content in a horrible situation. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not be content in that situation and get yourself into safety. Paul's not saying be content with the bad. He's saying pursue what's good. Don't be content in a horrible situation. That's not the point. Don't be content with being mistreated, but seek after what's good. Seek the benefit. There's nothing wrong with wanting. So Paul isn't arguing for the stoic way of living where we avoid these emotions. He says, don't, he's not saying just keep everything on the even keel. He's not saying learn to live with your desires. What he is saying is learn to be content through your desires. It's like learning to be patient by your patient. Through your desires, you're going to learn how to be content. The key to learning to be content in all situations, in all circumstances, is in that each, each and every single one of those circumstances remaining content. And we see the circular argument that he's going with. It's the mystery that he talks about. Don't be consumed by your desires. Don't let the want of a new house, of a new car, of a new shirt, of a new phone, or whatever it is you're scheming and wanting, ruin your day when you don't have it. We see what Paul is getting at, because here's how it works in the Thayer household. I have a two-year-old, and other than that, he's a pretty good guy. Uh, He's cuter than anything. Uh, But... When he wants something, he really wants something. He wants a fire truck, fire truck, that's what he calls it. And so when he says this, he comes running around and he wants this fire truck and he has one in his hand, but he wants the one over there. The one over there is perfectly the same as the one in his hand. But because his life is so focused on that fire truck, Everything is terrible until he gets that fire truck. 
There's kicking, there's flailing, there's this gesture, I don't know what it is, there's that, there's falling on the ground and weeping, there's looking for his bear until he gets that fire truck. Then, because I'm a softy and don't know what to do with this, I give him the fire truck that he's been wanting just to quiet him down, right? And then he's fine until he realizes that the one he had he can't find, and now he wants that one. And I think maybe he'll grow out of this, right? Maybe this whole thing about basing your entire happiness on what you don't have, might, he might fade. And then I realize I'm 38. And other than that, I'm a pretty good guy. And I realize that I base my happiness a lot of times on the things I don't have. On the what ifs of my life. Or if this situation would have gone totally different, how would I have been different in this? And I'm not content in my current situation. And then maybe I don't flail, maybe there's less crying. I don't do this a lot, a lot, maybe once or twice. But my happiness is, was, is sometimes based on the things that I want. And when I don't get it, when I start comparing my life with other people's lives, I see myself in deficit and I think I'm failing and I'm not happy because my contentment is based on the things I don't have. This is what Paul is telling the Philippians. If we want to learn to be content, you need to be content in your circumstance of wanting. It's, it's not defining your happiness on the things you have and what you don't have. And so Paul says, learn to be content, but then he gives us, he doesn't just say, be content and walk away. He says, here's the foundation of what you're content on. You're gonna build this house of contentment on something. And the foundation of it is, for Paul and for us, Christ. Seems easy, right? Jesus, yay, everything goes back to him. But Paul is serious about this. And it's not something new to scriptures. This happens in Psalms where the foundation of David's contentment in all of David's life being chased around and trying to be killed, the foundation of David's contentment was also found in Christ, in God. He says this in Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. I earnestly seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. The one thing that David wanted most was his relationship with Yahweh, with God in this. This is what he based his happiness on. In, the next, in, in Exodus, Moses says this, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up there. This is what was happening when Moses says this. The people were rebelling. God says, hey Moses, I have an idea. <coughs> Excuse me, I probably didn't cough like that. Moses, I have an idea. How about we ditch everybody and then you and I go by ourselves? And Moses goes, no, you gotta keep everybody or I'm out. And then God rebuts and says, okay, you all just go and I'll stay out of it. And Moses says, no, 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 no. More than anything, what we need is your presence. More than shelter, more than food, more than assurances, we need the presence of you, God. That's why he says, if you do not go with us, what's the point of us going? Moses takes Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and instead of starting with the physiological and safety at the base of it, puts the different base on it, says presence of God or contentment with God at the very bottom, and everything else stems from this. 
the foundation of a joyful life is contentment. And that contentment is only built on what God gives you. It's not based on a salary. Contentment isn't based on your job title or your balance or fulfilling your sexual needs or your, your, your friends. It's not based on any of those. It's not based, contentment's not based on having a Democrat in office or Republican in office or Libertarian in office. It's not based on all of those, any of those. The foundation where it begins is God. And Paul says this in essence in, in, in verse 13. All of these things that Paul is doing, all of this contentment is he can do all of these things through him, Christ, who gives him strength. This verse is always tagged on the back of an athlete's autograph, right? They always say, like, I, I have a, a Jim Abbott autograph, and it says Philippians 4.13 at the end of it. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying that because Christ gives you strength, you can throw a mean curveball. It is, but that's not what Paul is saying contextually. He's not saying that you can lift heavy weights because Christ gives you strength. Yes, Christ gave you the abilities to lift heavy weights, but this isn't what Paul was saying. He's saying is he has found contentment because Christ has given him the strength to be content in all of these situations. The foundation of contentment is found in Christ for everything that Paul comes in contact with. Christ is the one that has sustained him. So this, but for Paul to see that, he needed to be in a position to receive what Christ was trying to give him. Look in verse 15 with me. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more aid you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Paul says that he's grateful for this generosity and he's able to receive it. It might sound a little bit arrogant at first of what he's saying. I didn't need your gift at all, but he continues. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus these gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That last thing, fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, is a nod to the prophets when the prophets would say, your sacrifice has to be acceptable to God. And so what Paul is saying is all of these sacrifices you're giving, they're acceptable to God. God is pleased with what you've given. Your account is in full, using accountant's term. This is the proper thank you that he should have probably led with. But what Paul is saying here is that even in the provision that they gave him, the provision came from the Philippian people in all of those places. But Paul sees the source of their provision going back even further. The provision was actually from Christ and the Philippians were used to provide for Paul. It raises this question for us. Who provides for you? Is it your job? Is it your paycheck? Is it your dividends? Is it your investments? Or is Christ God using those things to provide for you? You see what I mean? God is using your job to provide for you. You're called to that area. You're called to this place, whether it be Amazon, Starbucks, an investment firm, an advertising firm, whatever it is, these things God is using to provide for you. 
whether it's you're retired and you're living off what, what investments you've made or starting out, every provision comes through and from Christ. That is the provision that is, and so Paul sees this. The Philippians wrote him the check. It comes from Bank of Philippi. But God gave them the mercy and the grace to send that so the reality is the headwaters of the provision comes from God himself. So Paul says, even in your giving, this comes from God and I will take my contentment in this. This changes the way we view how we get our stuff. It makes it a little bit more open-handed. When we see this way, we aren't dependent on our circumstances in order to make us content. Paul doesn't base his contentment on the fact that he's in prison. Because even in prison, God is going to use somebody to provide for him. His circumstances doesn't make him thrive or not thrive. This is, uh, your work is your calling and you're being used by your calling and God in that place to provide for your needs. This is how we saw it growing up. My dad has a, had his own construction business. And in construction, there's times where it's going really good and times where it's going really bad. There's really no in the middle. And the times where it was really tight, dad would say, this money, this check that he got from a client, this check is God's provision for us. It's not this client provided for us. No, God gave me this client, we built this, and in, in return, we were provided for. This freed my dad up, and when he saw it, it changed him, or it changed his perspective on things. It allowed him to live his life a little bit more open-handed. Because he knew that whoever placed that thing there was going to, God was going to place it there again. It wasn't his client. It wasn't anything that he did. It was God placing this gift, this provision. And because he was able to live life a little bit more open-handed, he wasn't bogged down by trying to grasp everything for himself. God would bring the provision when it was needed. And there were times where it came at the very last minute, but it was still provided for. It was a model to me, and I'm still trying to apply it today, but it showed me that the source for everything came from, comes from Christ. And the more my hands are full with me trying to control circumstances in order to gain contentment, the less I'm able to grab on to what God has for me in there. The provision comes from Christ, no matter where the provision comes from. When my hands are empty, I am able to fully receive what Christ has for me. Some days I get this. Some days I don't. And I can't sleep that night. But it raises the question for me, am I able to receive when God tries to provide for me? Then maybe it's for you too. Are you able to receive the source of provision? Paul basically says this, I know the gift came from you and I'm grateful, but it comes from Christ. Everything comes from Christ. So our, and what, Paul, what Paul is getting at is God uses other people to meet our needs. And it's really hard sometimes to live in that kind of place of a vulnerability when you're in need to allow other people to meet your need. It's not always financial. We tend to look at this and think needs are always financially based. No. Sometimes needs are friendship based. Sometimes they're emotionally based. Sometimes your need is just someone to talk to. Sometimes you need encouragement. Uh, sometimes you need help. 
moving, just the basics of life. But the thing is, we don't ask for help often, and so we miss the chance for God's provision to come because we don't like being vulnerable or being found in that place of need. The Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians 8. It says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have, did, did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Your abundance of time, of maybe your finances, of your talents, of your spiritual gifts, of the things that where you can help, your abundance of those things can meet the deficit in somebody else. You can be used to fulfill and provide for somebody who's in need in that. And in turn, when you need help moving, maybe they'll help you back because then they'll have an abundance of time and maybe a truck and maybe some muscles and a dolly. There's this thing that goes back and forth. And so Paul is saying this, you have provided for me in my need and somebody will provide for you in your need. It's not just money, it's the listening ear. We've had a few times when we've seen this. In my life, when, when, the, when the house fire came through, we've talked about that a little bit before, the house fire comes through, one of the hardest things for my mom and I was to sit there. Dad was in Nepal, but was to be in a hotel and have people come and bring us stuff. We needed the stuff, right? Because we lost everything. We needed it. And these people, God had put it on their heart to come and supply us from that. Some of it was just getting us out of the hotel and taking us to dinner. Sometimes it was just coming and hanging out with us in the lounge of the hotel. But we needed that, and it was really hard because we had to say, we're in a hard place right now. And that's a hard thing to say for people. But God used those people to provide the needs. When Dad died two years ago, this was another thing. I had friends take me to movies I didn't want to get out. They took me golfing. They got me out of the house. They called, make sure I was okay, sent cards. They were providing for my need in that place. And in turn, I can provide for people when they go through similar roads that I've been into. You see how this works? Your needs are, are provided for by other people. And you get to provide for other people in their needs. God used them to supply what I was needing, and it was humbling in all of that. But they were the agency of God's provision. And because of that, we're able to find joy in it because we see God in the midst of all these circumstances. So here's Paul in prison, probably going to die soon. Alone, he has these guards all around him, the Praetorian guards, Caesar's own guards. And he says, I have joy because God is still providing for me in the worst of all circumstances. He has a court date with Nero. He's going to be killed, but God provides for him in all of these circumstances and he's able to have joy. Look back in verse 10. It says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that, you, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Then in verse 11, I am confident that God will provide everything that I, everything I need for everything I'm called to do. And then in verse 19, it says, and my God will meet all your needs in the, according to the riches 
of his glory in Christ Jesus. If I can contextualize this a little bit. It says, I'm confident that in the midst of your generosity, you too will never lack anything you need to fulfill the calling that God has on you. God fulfilled everything for Paul and his calling, and he's confident that in their calling, God will give them everything that they need because they can find contentment in that fact. He's saying, bet on it. Be content in that fact. And then something else happens. In verse 22, Paul says this, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong in Caesar's household. Especially those who belong in Caesar's household. Here's the interesting thing. Caesar was the one who was trying to kill Paul. Caesar was the one who wanted Paul dead. This guy, Caesar was God and, and king, and Paul's going around and saying, uh-uh, Jesus is king. Caesar is what they called Lord, and Paul says in everything, Jesus is Lord. And so, but Paul says this weird thing. The Christians here say hello to you, even the ones in Caesar's household. So there's, there's something growing from what Paul is doing here. He's not letting his circumstance stop his calling. He's content in this circumstance. And because he's content in his circumstance, he's seeing how God is using him in this circumstance. In chapter one, we'll put it on the screen in verse 12, 13. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. The palace guard, the Praetorian guard, were the, the studs of the guard of that day, right? They're the most fierce guards. They were the ones guarding Paul. They were with him 24-7. They were also the ones that would guard Caesar. And so here's Paul sitting in prison. This guy's there. He's probably an extrovert. Got to talk to somebody. Let me tell you about Christ. This guard who was said to, if this guy moves, kill him, all of a sudden is hearing about Jesus over and over. And then he says, all right, Paul, you're right, I'm in. And then the next guard comes, shift change. Paul goes, captive audience. Here's another one. Circumstance, Paul's in chains. He's content in his circumstance. And pretty soon the gospel, the news of Jesus has gone from a jail cell to the room where Caesar resides. Because Paul was content in his circumstance, he was able to be used in all of those circumstances. The saints in Caesar's household greet you. It's probably one of those sent with a winky emoji, like, yeah, you read that right. Paul wanted to be a rabbi. He wanted to be a Jewish teacher of the day. Now he's a Christ follower. Things didn't go the way Paul wanted them to go. He wanted ministry among the Jews when he was converted. God sent him to the Gentiles. He wanted to be liked by people, but he was stoned. He was left for dead. He was beaten uh, five times with 39 lashes. The 40th was sent to kill people. He wanted to be free, but now he finds himself in chains. He wants to keep living. But he says earlier in Philippians that he is probably going to die from this. Paul had every right to be bitter. 
Paul had every right to play the victim card. Paul had every right to stand up and complain about how what he wanted to happen never happened that way. He had every right to be discontent, but instead he learned contentment. And from there he changed the world. He lived a life without contingencies. How? He became intimately aware and connected with the source of his contentment. And he knew that didn't matter the circumstances, God would provide for him and he would be used wherever he finds himself sitting, either on a shipwrecked boat or in a jail cell. From there, he continually received the source of joy and wisdom and strength. And in that way, he's able to say, I can do all of this stuff because Christ is the one who supplies me with all the strength I need. And because his joy was, able, was, was found in seeing Christ in every circumstance, Paul found joy in every circumstance because as he says in Colossians, Christ is holding all of this stuff together and can be found in every circumstance. And because of that, he had joy without contingencies. And so here we are, probably in circumstances that we never thought we'd be in. Your life had gone maybe a different way and you were hoping that it'd go this way, but it didn't. You might find yourself discouraged. You might find yourself discontent. What is that place where you are finding your discontent and it's stealing and robbing you from your joy? And how can we find the, content, the contentment inside of it? Where Paul finds his joy and contentment is in the middle of the unexpected and unsought situation. Here's what he said in, in Philippians 1.18. But what does it matter? Uh, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is being preached, and because of this I rejoice. What is your unsought situation? What is your unsought circumstance? Maybe today, as, as Tim comes back up with the band, maybe it's writing it in the bottom of your bulletin. My unsought circumstance is this. And then asking yourself, how can I find joy and contentment in this, my unsought circumstance? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you use these unsought circumstances uh, to form Christ in all of us. You use them to teach us to rejoice in you, to reveal life from you, and even there to be able to find you. And God, life is full of these unsought circumstances. Some of them are good, some of them are painful, some of them are indifferent. But Lord, grant us the ability to see them as ways in which you provide for us. That even in the unsought, even in the painful, you don't leave us. The psalmist writes that even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. You protect us. So God, may we find joy in the unsought. May we find peace in the circumstances that rob us from our peace. May we find contentment that comes from the everlasting source of contentment in Christ. It's in your name we pray.